invite you to turn to Psalm 16 here. And as we are turning to Psalm 16, I'm going to read from Romans 15. Uh, In Romans 15, Paul tells the church there, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we take the word of God written so long ago, 3,000 years ago, if we're looking at a psalm of David here today, let's submit our hearts to God's living word that is living and active in us here today through the power of the Holy Spirit. Fathers, we come before you uh, as prayed earlier. We come with distractions. We come with burdens. Some of us come completely uninterested. Oftentimes we get drugged here because we have to. But Father, today, let today be different. Let today be a new day. Please, Lord, do your work in each one. Through the power of your word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to submit our hearts and our minds to you. That you would be glorified, that we would delight in you this day. And that from this place we could go forth in the joy of Christ, in the joy of the Holy Spirit, rejoicing in the eternal life that we know with you even now that we then might be salt and light to the world. Guard our hearts and minds. Guard and protect the preaching and teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 2018, for the most part, lies in your wake. And with what is behind, Satan's going to do one of two things in your life. The first thing he could do with 2018 is pretty much crush your soul with it. Um, He's going to bring to mind like some macabre uh, torture master, the shouldas, the wouldas, the couldas that have been left behind. He's going to remind you of all of your bad decisions. He is going to rub in your face the sins of 2018. He will not let them pass by. And day by day, he is going to bring to your consciousness regret, disappointment, despair, discouragement, and leave you pretty much with depression. 2018 on the ash heap of history. That's one thing Satan could do with the year that's been. The other thing he could do with it is go, man, what a great year! What a fabulous year. Think of the memories. And he could just take a tire pump and inflate your soul. Look at all the great things that came to me and upon me. Look at what my hands have done. And I could marvel. Look at my successes at work. Look at my successes at home. 
Look at the successes in the church. What a blessed man I am. True. That's true. That's very true. You are blessed where you sit right now, no matter your circumstances. But Satan is going to take the magnificent that should allow us to glory in God and he's going to take the magnificent and puff up your ego. And we have no clue of the grave danger. We are speeding down the backside of 2018 and our brakes are cut and we don't even know it. And up ahead is the sharp curve of 2019. So, then how do I prevent myself from being drugged like a shipwreck into the abyss of regret over 2018, or being launched like a missile into the ozone of my own ego when I look back? How can I step foot out of the capsule of 2018 into the new land of 2019 without crippling fear and without a false bravado? Solomon told us in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. There is nothing new under the sun. And so as we face each new day and each new challenge, we must always, always turn to Christ. We must look to our Savior, the author and finisher of our faith. Each new day exposes my constant dependence upon Him. If that's true in each new day, so absolutely in each new year. So to start off this year, we take our compass to help us point to true north here. We're going to look at a magnificent psalm, Psalm 16. If you've never memorized a chapter of scripture, Psalm 16 is great. There's a whole mess up. Psalm 1 is a good one. But Psalm 16 is extraordinary for many reasons. We'll go through them here today. But David helps us orient ourselves to the reality around us and to help us step forward into a glorious new day and a new year in the hope and power of our Lord. God's word, great place to start here. As Nate read to us, we see right off the bat, this is a psalm of David. And just by way of background, David was a true Renaissance man. Uh, If you don't know much of his history, he was a warrior leader. He was the Goliath slayer as a young man. He was a faithful servant to a king. He served under King Saul, even though he himself had been anointed as king. David did not take that as an opportunity to undercut the king he served, but really to serve him. He was a poet. He is the chief of psalmists. As you flip through the psalms, you'll see David's name under most of them. He is to the psalms what Solomon, his son, is to the Proverbs. He's a musician. He played the harp for Saul and created a bunch of instruments for the temple that his son would build. And we know he was king of Israel. And here... This psalm starts out with a prayer and then feeds off of that. Okay, it builds off of the prayer, but the prayer stands at the beginning. 
It is the masthead of the entire psalm. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Preserve me. This is innate. This is normal. Preserve me. Little kids don't do it, but most adults do. They'll look both ways before crossing the street because they don't want to get hit by a truck. Um, flying. Guys out at the base hook themselves up to a parachute all the time. Why? In case their airplane stops flying. They have a way to preserve their life. So this is not an uncommon request or an unnatural request for David. Preserve my life, O God, for in you I take refuge. He's, he's saying, watch over me. That's the sense of the word preserve me. Watch over me. Like a parent watches over his children. Here. A lot of times, though, as a kid, I don't want my parent preserving me. I'll take care of myself. And we as adults do this day by day. Well, I'm going to preserve my own life. Through exercise, I'm going to run to help my heart so I can live longer. Conceal carry. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preserve my life. I'm going to build walls and fences to keep the bad people out. I'm going to have bodyguards. I'm going to have a freighty hole. That's what they call them around here. A storm cellar here for the tornadoes that might come. I'm going to preserve my life. But we as believers know and understand because God word, God's word makes plain to us that there is only one way our life can be preserved. And that is through God's hand. James writes in his letter, chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. He says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Jesus said the same thing to his disciples, in a sense. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 28 to 31, he said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Now, God's not suggesting there that you're not going to die. You will. Unless, of course, Christ returns. But he is suggesting that if he knows... The death of a sparrow that you may have caused as you hit it on your way to church this morning. If he knows the death of the sparrow, he knows your life and breath and death. 
He has far greater care for you. And he knows the purposes and plans he has for you. And he knows the very nature of your death. Therefore, David says, with with absolute peace, in you I take refuge. In a sense, truly, I've heard this said before, this isn't original, that we are immortal until God says it's time. That doesn't mean to live capriciously. I'm not telling you to go 85, 90 miles an hour down Cal Boulevard on your Suzuki without a helmet, wearing flip-flops and shorts. You're a moron. Okay, that's dumb. I'm not telling you to wear wingsuits or, you know, and, and jump off the Alps and all those, all those crazy things. He's not, he's not telling us not to take common sense precautions. But we will not die until our appointed time. You won't. This is, this is a replete theme throughout the Psalms. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Psalm 56, verse 11. Psalm 118, verse 6 says, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Peter wrote it this way. He says, Cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. That means get rid of them. Don't coddle them, don't stroke them, don't pet them. Get rid of them. Why? Because God cares for you. David goes on. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I said to the Lord, Yahweh God, covenant God, you are my Adonai, you are my Lord, you are my master. So same word, two different meanings. Probably spelled a little differently, different fonts in your Bible. I say to my covenant God, you are my master. I am under your hand. All good things I have come by your hand. Did God need David to tell him this? No, it's silly. Of course not. God knows this. For for David to say, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. This is a truth that God grasps far better than David does, did, or we do today. But oh, for a parent to hear such things from their child. That's way better than any trophy. To hear your child get it. What a joy and what a delight. You are my God. I have no good. I understand. I comprehend. I get it. I have no good apart from you. And this is our bedrock for stepping into 2019. And really each new day. God is the sole source of our good. God knows full well the events that today will bring. He knows what will 
happened throughout 2019. And God alone provides the grace, the life, and the breath to face and enjoy and endure what will befall us. So from this plea, David goes on to contrast three different groups as they stand before the Lord. In this next section, we're going to see how the saints, how he sees the saints, how he sees the lost, and really how he sees himself within this situation. In verse 3, the saints, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The saints, the set-apart ones, the ones chosen by God. To be his people. They are excellent. In them I find my delight. Really? Are the people in the church. Really in your mind. The excellent ones. Are the people in God's church. The ones in whom. You find delight. Should we? Yes. They are your siblings in Christ. They're the ones with whom we will share eternity. They're the ones God has provided us for my growth in the church. Because you are gifted in ways I am not. I need what you've got. You need what I've got. Because the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit works in each one for his glory and for your good. In them I find my delight. I mean, for some people that's staggering. It's like the guy who really loves his wife. He does? You know, in our culture today, that's like mind-blowing. You really love your wife? Yeah, I do. I do. How long have you been married? Really? Okay, is it always, whoa, warm and fuzzy? No, it's not. Sometimes it takes work and purpose and intent. But that's the way it is in the church, too. We're not always going to get along great. Sometimes I don't like the conviction you bring to me. Okay, that would be on a good side if I looked at it that way. I need that conviction, but I don't like it. Now, if I were looking at it without the lens of God's word, I'm going to not like the judgment you cast on me. No. Arrogant. How arrogant. I need to hear what you have to say in grace and humility. Well, I don't like those people. I don't care. You must. There comes a lot of time in marriages where a husband looks at the wife and goes, I don't like you very much. Too bad. She is your wife. You need to cultivate that back in your life as you cling to Christ and you recognize what God's word says about her, that she is a jewel and a treasure. If that's true in marriage, that's true in our relationships in the church as well. God, our heavenly father, loves them and chose them. 
We are lazy to see the excellence within our brothers and sisters. David sees it. God, give us eyes to see this. But not only does David look out and see the saints as he sees the world, he sees those who stand opposed to the living God and do not acknowledge him in verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Those who run after another God. This location is extraordinary when it rains. Because there is a cascade that comes down from First Baptist Church in this gutter that makes the white waters of the Grand Canyon look calm. Uh, it makes me think, uh, I grew up in Minnesota, when the snows melt in the springtime, that's the time to build little stick rafts and put them down. Just, they're gone. And they're not gone randomly. They are gone in a specific direction. One day, uh, one of my children went out in a pouring rain to help us out. Our car was parked right out there. And he fumbled with the keys. You would think keys being weighty would just fall. No, they were gone. We never saw them again. But that is the picture of those who run after another God. What are they after? It's simple. Not God. So what is that? Well, pick your idol. It can be an object. It can be a philosophy. It can be an activity. It can be a good thing. Not God. My wife. A good thing. But she's not God. What's he say? He says, those who do this, their sorrows will multiply. And, and this should come as no surprise to us. It shouldn't. If in God only can be found the fullness of life, if in God only can be found the provision for the moment and my soul satisfaction, would I not expect to find sorrow in other sources? Like, yeah, duh. If gas goes in my tank, what happens if I prefer to use milk? Yeah, no. Dude, you just, man, that's going to cost a lot of money. There, It's not just because you put milk in there. You just destroyed your engine. And that's what happens. There's a multiplication of sorrows. It's not just a single woe. You know, you can, you can pick your sin. I'm not against alcohol at all, but let me talk about alcohol abuse here. I'm not, so. I'm just. Alcohol abuse in scripture, drunkenness is forbidden by God. It's a sin. It's a sin. Drunkards will not attain to the kingdom of heaven. He says that in his word. Just like adulterers, same deal. So it's a sin. It separates you from the living God. If you find your hope and your satisfaction and your salvation in alcohol, it's going to separate you from God. But it's also going to destroy your health. It's going to destroy your liver, going to destroy your heart, cancers, possibility. Again, excess. I'm talking excess. But there are other problems. You're going to have problems with the police. 
probably. You're going to have problems with your spouse and your kids. You're going to have problems at work. You're going to have problems with your friends. And pick your saying, gossip. You can, you can go, if, if, if gossip is your thing, oh, we're, I'm just going to tell them, no, man. It will multiply your sorrows, gluttony, fits of anger. If you can't control your emotions, lust, pornography. Oh, it's just, no, it's not just a. Uh. It will multiply your sorrows, bitterness. David says, I will not follow after their ways. I will not drink the offerings of blood. I will, I, I will not pour them out. To pour out a drink offering, typically it was wine. The Jews would use wine as a drink offering. Okay? It was, it was precious to them. It was their drink. It showed God's blessing, his provision of the vine. And so we're going to offer it to God and pour it out to him. It's used in celebration. Wine is good. A drink offering of blood. Death. Was not to be drunk by Jew or Christian. Genesis chapter 9 and Acts chapter 15. So far was David going to put these people from him that he would not take their names upon their lips. He would not have purposed association there within their religion or to speak of them as an authority in a vow. Well, that guy's an expert. Well, so-and-so said this. Okay, I'm not, not even going to take their name on my lips. Now, that does not mean, David's not implying that we ought to go live in a commune and not have any association with those who don't know Christ. Okay, he's not implying that at all. Paul argues against that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But these people ought not be our sources of authority. They ought not be people we follow after in our worship. In this life, we hold fast to those who hold fast to the word. They should be those who we have our closest associations and our closest friendships. We must, though, have friendships with those who are not believers. How else are they going to hear the word? How else are they going to see the love of God lived out? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Psalm 1.1 So there are the saints, there are those who run opposed to God, and then David looks at himself here in verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David's saying, I choose God. I see what's going on in the world and I choose God. Day by day, for the saint to see the wonders and goodness of God, to acknowledge God and to choose Him is a delight to the Father's heart. To wake up in the morning and go, oh, God, thank you for this new day. I cling to you. I look forward to walking this day with you. 
You are my chosen portion in my cup. You are what I want. And I will trust in you in all things. This is like Abraham and Lot. You know, as, as their, their, their shepherds began to conflict with one another, they had so much stuff. Abraham and Lot had to part ways. And Abraham trusted the Lord to allow Lot to make the decision. What, what land do you want, Lot? Lot's going, I want the plum stuff down in the valley near those neat cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sweet. But Abraham trusted God to let Lot make that decision. And so will we rejoice in this when God's cup for us is difficulty and hardship? Uh, John Stone Street, uh, Christian spokesman, he was speaking of Johnny Erickson Tata one day. And he said, what continually stuns me and convicts me is how Johnny understands even now, after 50 years in a wheelchair, and even in the midst of a second battle with cancer, that her suffering is not about her. It has eternal potential. Johnny, when she was a teen, dove into shallow water, hit a stone, broke her neck. Laid there, face down in the water, until somebody dragged her out, because she couldn't. And that's been the testimony of her life from that point forward. She was now a quadriplegic. She couldn't. Somebody else had to on every aspect of her life. She could have given up. She could have moaned and groaned and complained, but she didn't. She understood, and it didn't come easily, and she, it wasn't all roses for her, but she understood in her grief, in her, in her sorrow that she would never walk again, she understood that God has eternal purpose and potential even in our most incredible miseries. John Stone Street went on. He said, she knows, and she's told me herself, that the way she handles what's happening to her right now will send a message. Not only that life with disability is worth living, but that God has a special place in his family for those our culture considers inconvenient. She understands that members of Christ's body who cannot walk or cannot see or interact on the same level as others are not only indispensable parts of the kingdom of God, but are needed by the rest of us for our own edification and sanctification. How willing am I in 2019 to submit my will to the overflowing cup of my creator? David looks to where God has brought him. His lot Okay, it's not his, not his parking lot, not his, not his lot of grass, but the roll of the dice. We look at life as random circumstance. And on this plane it is, but on this plane it's not because the every, every roll of the dice is in the Lord's hands. David sees that you hold my lot. The lines that you have, have, have given me have fallen in pleasant places. And I rejoice in what you have done to bring me to this day. Count your blessings for all that God has done in you and through you and for you. 
And consider your destiny. Indeed, he says, I have a beautiful inheritance. Set your mind on things above where moth and rust do not destroy is what Jesus calls us to do. From here, David looks at three beautiful responses to God to guide us here as we step into 2019. The first thing David does is he blesses the Lord. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. To bless the Lord, the, the picture of the word is to kneel, to face down. It's an act of humility or an act of worship. I recognize that he is the one who provides me counsel. From God alone comes wisdom. He uses other means. And so I have to scrutinize those other means. Do they echo what God has said? There's an implication of gratitude here. I bless the Lord. Oh, I'm thankful for the counsel he gives me. I don't roll my eyes. Oh, God's saying that again. Killing my joy here in this life. That is not his intent. And so filled is David by his counsel that in the night also, my heart instructs me. I mean, it it overflows. And that that was my exhortation at the start of the, the worship service to read through God's word. If you've never done that, you can do it, man. You can. Are we so saturated with God's word that his truth drips from our lips more readily than rock lyrics or Princess Bride or Star Wars quotes? God's word exhorts us over and over about the importance and the value of knowing his word. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. A protection against sin. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Your word is the joy of my heart. These all come from Psalm 119, that big humongous psalm about God's word. To guard us from sin, to give us understanding, to be a joy to our heart. And it is through the word of God that we understand also from Psalm 119 that in faithfulness, he afflicted me. He's got beautiful, wonderful, great purpose and plan. So David is going to bless the Lord. The second thing we see that he does here is he sets God always before me. Verse 8, I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. What is my priority in all things? God. Is he or isn't he? It's yes or no. Uh, No, it's yes or no. Is he your priority in all things? Will he be my consideration in all that I do and say and think? Will I walk where Jesus walked? Will we focus on Christ like a runner looks at the finish line? Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So why are you looking somewhere else? How would this affect your life? Would I snap at my children if, no kidding, Christ was beside me, before me, present with me? Would I blow up at my children? 
Would I get snotty with my parents if Christ was before me? Sorry, Carter. Oh, I directed at you. Would I take a second look at the woman in the grocery store if Christ was before me? Would I steal from my school if Christ was before me? Would I watch that movie if Christ was before me? Would I ignore the woman on the side of the road in the rain if Christ was before me? Now in setting him before me, it's not merely going to alter my outward conduct. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. My inner man is altered as well. What have I to fear? We already kind of labored on that for a bit. God can whip any bully. God can chase any fear, untie any knot, cleanse any soiled garment, refresh the spent, and resurrect the dead. I shall not be shaken. And I would encourage you that on the flip side of that, you will not know peace apart from him. You cannot know peace apart from him. David says, I will bless the Lord. I will set the Lord ever before me. And third, I will abide in joy overflowing. Therefore, verse 9, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Based on all of this, all because of my relationship with God in Christ Jesus, I can know overwhelming joy. I can dwell in joy despite and even because of my circumstances. Jesus exhorted his, his brothers the night before his crucifixion. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. God does not want us, his creatures, to hate life. Over and over, Paul says, rejoice always. Philippians 4, 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul says, or not Paul, but David says, with my whole being, my whole being rejoices. So as I abide in joy overflowing, I, I dwell in that and there is security. We've talked about the security of, of being with God. He will not abandon us to death. For the saint, death is going to be a vapor. You're going to be here in this life and there in the next. There may be pain on this side during that transition, childbirth kind of deal. I, I, I don't know. I've never died but some will die in their sleep and it's going to be, you went to sleep on your pillow in your bedroom and you woke up in eternity in heaven. Cherubim, seraphim. Now, this scripture is actually a prophetic word about Jesus Christ. Peter uses this scripture here, verses 9 and 10, in uh, his sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 27. Paul also uses it in Antioch. 
in Acts chapter 13, verse 35. But it's true about us. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Do you believe it? Paul says it. Therefore, it's true. Do you believe it? When we depart, we are with Christ, is what he says in Philippians 1.23. He tells the Corinthians, when we are away from the body, we will be at home with the Lord. Right now, in our eternal life, we can know fullness of joy. I need to preach this to myself because I sat there washing dishes at the sink, crying last night because of discouragement. It's going to affect everyone, but we can know fullness of joy right now. And God didn't hide it from us. He has made known to us the path of life. That's what he says in verse 11. This is, I mean, you take verse one, you take verse 11. Verse 11 is extraordinary. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He makes known to us the path of life in his word, in the saints, through his son, who is the word, through the Holy Spirit indwelling the saints, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. What's going to happen to you in 2019? I don't know. I can't even begin to imagine it. There may be some of us who are not here at the end of the year. Some of what might happen in 2019 might be a result of what went down in 2018. But outcomes I can't control. But with David, we can find a present and eternal security in the living God right now. Now, if you've never known such joy in Christ, if you wonder about what this is all about, if you don't have the assurance of your salvation, today is the day. The assurance is found in the word. If you don't know that assurance, please come and talk to me after the service. Jesus Christ's finished work will save you from the wrath of God fully and completely. But for the saint, what's going to happen to you when you walk out that door? Here's what Charles Spurgeon exhorted as he's vaulting off Psalm 16. He says, wake in the morning and recognize God in your chamber. For his goodness has drawn back the curtain of the night and taken from your eyelids the seal of sleep. Put on your garments and perceive the divine care which provides you with raiment from the herb of the field and the sheep of the fold. Go to breakfast and bless the Lord whose bounty has provided for you a table in the wilderness. Go out to business and feel God with you in all the engagement of the day. Perpetually remember that you are dwelling in his house when you are toiling for your bread or engaged in merchandise. At length, after a well-spent day, go back to your family and see the Lord in each one of the members of it. Own his goodness in preserving life and health. Look for his presence at the family altar, making the house to be a very palace wherein king's children dwell. At last, fall asleep at night as in the embraces of your God or on your Savior's breast. This is happy living. He says, the worldling forgets God, 
The sinner dishonors him. The atheist denies him. But the Christian lives in him. Will we find delight in his church? That's the, he's done. Will we find delight in his church? Will we forsake the enticements and the promises of those who are opposed to God? Will we choose rather to follow hard after God, our Savior, and wrestle with him, clenching to him as Jacob did? Do we see even now the pleasant places that he has laid out for us and the beautiful inheritance he has bequeathed to us? Let us live and bless his name. Let us set him ever before our eyes and minds and let us go and rejoice and be glad in him. Let's pray. Father, we have no good thing apart from you and we rejoice in the glories of your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that helps us to see and hear. We thank you for the fellowship that we have with you that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. Oh, what a joy. Father, if there be any here today who do not know you, are not certain about their salvation, I pray, God, that you would work in their heart, open their eyes to see, their ears to hear, to see Christ and his sacrifice as for them. Be with us as we go from this place for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.